right, if you would, uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, or just look along in your, your bulletin there. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're looking at a short little passage to get us kicked off here this morning. It's verses 13 through 16. You know, I've heard from a number of you or through the grapevine that a number of you really are enjoying this new sermon series titled Saved For dot dot dot, where we've seen that God doesn't merely save us from things like our sin, but he saves us for things. Like today, we're going to see that God has saved us for holiness. Now, it's really important that we understand our need of holiness for many reasons, but certainly one of which is what we see the writer of the Hebrews saying in his writings where he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So there's a lot on the line with regards to holiness. Let's begin. First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. Um, We human beings, as smart as we are, are really lost in the dark without you um, speaking first to us, revealing yourself, who you are, and what you've called us to be as people made in your image. May we more fully understand this morning uh, your glory, your holiness, and what you've called us to be as your people, set apart as holy unto you, we pray. Amen. Imagine. I know it's hard for us 21st century people to use our imaginations. We've kind of lost that ability. But imagine, if you would, that you could go back in time, let's say to the 1960s. Let's say you can go back into time to the 1960s. And, and, and you were to, to tell someone, you were to say, hey, how would you like to carry around in your pocket this little miniature device with a TV-like screen on it? And from this device, you can instantly message your friend's pockets. And with this device, you can follow your kids online social media posts. You can track your Amazon.com purchases. You can even stream live content like ESPN and podcasts. How do you think people would respond? (laughs) They would think you're out of your mind. Why would I need anything like that? What is a podcast and an ESPN? Why would I ever want to follow my kids? What's online? But then perhaps you tell them, 
Oh, by the way, it's a phone. <laughs> and you won't know, you'll no longer need to carry the newspaper with you into the bathroom. <laughs> Even then, I think people would say, I have absolutely no need of that. To which you reply, you, are, you have no idea. Everybody in the future is going to need one of these. Everybody's going to have a smartphone. You will want a smartphone. What we're going to see this morning is this. Jesus alone is able to give you that which you need most but want least. He is able to give you that which you need most but want least. Holiness. Holiness, you say? Really? That's what I need most but want least? Well, perhaps your reticence proves my point. And so this morning we're going to investigate holiness, what the word really means, why it's so necessary for us to experience ultimate peace and flourishing in this life. Now, my first main point, and there's really only like 1.5 main points, so that's good. My first main point violates all the laws of homiletics. That's like how to preach. See, main points are supposed to be short and memorable, but, but here's mine. Follow along if you can. I, I, I don't have it memorized, so first sign that something's wrong. Here we go. <laughs> God is holy, and we are made in God's image to be holy, but we are not holy, and that is not a good position to be in. But thankfully, God has remedied our situation through his son, Jesus Christ, who is able to make us holy so that we can finally not only desire to be holy, but actually become the people we were made to be. Whew. All right, that's the first main point. We're going to go through it kind of quickly. All right, God is holy. Is he holy? What does that mean? In verse 16 of our passage, um, Peter, remember Peter, he's the one who walked by Jesus' side for all those years. Peter is right, writes a letter to a church that's struggling, uh, suffering. Uh, they're, they're having a hard time holding on and living out this life God has called them to. And um, in verse 16, Peter uh, says, we read here, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter's actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the book of Leviticus. God was speaking to his people, his holy people, the nation of Israel, that he had just delivered out of captivity. God had shown him his grace and brought them to himself, set them apart as holy. And God says, okay, you are now my people and you need to know something about me. I am holy. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, writes that no language dictionary is up to the task of defining the word holiness. This is partly in due to the fact that, that the word holy is used in a number of different ways in the Bible. Now, it's become customary, though, to define holy as purity or free from stain or holy perfect, W-H-O-L-O-I, and immaculate in every detail. And so purity is usually the word that most of us think of when we hear the word holy. Isn't that right? I'm not saying that's wrong, but the Bible uses the word in this way. But the idea of purity or moral perfection is at best the secondary meaning of the term when it's used in the Bible. Earlier, Danny Gomez, thank you, Danny, read that famous passage from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 
where Isaiah is given a vision up into heaven. And in heaven, he sees this remarkable six-winged angelic beast called a seraphim. And he's standing, and others are flying around the, the throne and, and the throne of the Lord in heaven. And one seraphim cries out to the other. And what, what does it say? Holy, holy, holy. Ancient Hebrew, when it repeats a word, it does it to emphasize it. This is the only instance in all the Bible where a descriptive word is used three times to emphasize a point. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now understand this. Is it not true these seraphim were saying more than purity, 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 right? (laughs) See, the meaning, uh, the primary meaning of the word holy is separate. It comes from the Hebrew word that means to cut or to separate. But even that falls short. It's more like it's a, a cut above, right? God's holiness is, is transcendent. And so when we think of the holiness of God, we are right to have in mind that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other. It's to be different and separate in a special way. And so in the Bible, we see a number of things are declared holy. We hear holy things like holy ground, holy place, holy tithe, holy bread, holy nation, holy anointing oil, holy water, holy guacamole. (laughs) Okay, that's not in there. I was just seeing if you guys are paying attention. My kids aren't. That's all right. (laughs) They actually don't like my jokes. In every case, the word holy is used to express something more than, something other than a moral or ethical quality, such as purity. Each of those holy things have been separated from the commonplace to be something special or different apart from the others. You know, in my kitchen, we have many, many knives. Trust me, I bought a knife organizer, and they're still not all organized, all right? We have many knives that we use all year long to to cut and to serve steak and chicken and fish. But we have a special carving set that is set aside for one special day, for one special purpose. Can you think of what it is? Yeah, Thanksgiving. It's a turkey carving knife. It has been set apart for that special purpose. It's not a common knife as others. In a similar manner, in the ancient temple worship, common elements like bowls and utensils were, were, were consecrated by water or by blood, the sprinkling of it, to be set apart so that they would be holy unto the Lord for use in his special purposes. God takes common things, ordinary things, and set them, uh, sets them apart as holy unto his special purposes. So where does purity come in? Well, moral purity is included in the overall picture of holiness and the meaning of it. God's holiness includes his moral perfection and his goodness. Everything that God is and everything that God does is perfectly pure. It's untarnished, unstained, unblemished. And so, purity is to be present in all that God sets apart as holy unto himself. Just as I wouldn't pull out my Thanksgiving turkey carver 
and use it to cut open Amazon.com boxes. So too the things set apart by God as holy are not to be defiled or made impure by wrong use. So God is holy. But also we need to know that we were made in God's image to be holy. In the very opening chapters of the Bible, we see this. We read here, we see, so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It takes more than one being to image God because God is a trinity. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the whole earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the beginning, at creation, mankind was created wholly unto God. Listen, let this sink in. We were made to be God's image bearers on earth, to know him, to to share in his good rule over the creation that he gave us to steward, to reflect his glory, which includes his moral purity. We were made in God's image to be holy. But, there's a but, B-U-T, but we're not holy. And that's not a good position to be in. See, the problem is that mankind is now a broken image of that original creation that we were made to be. We have rejected God by and large. And we try to live our lives cut off from God. And and we make so much a mess of the things of life. And deep down inside, we know that there must be some deeper meaning and purpose in life. Life has to be more than just me and my looks or, or me and my family or me and my possessions or, or me and my accomplishments. We sense that remnant still there in our souls of that divine and holy calling. That's why we're so restless. See, humanity had a calling from God that was heroic. To live holy lives on earth, to live set apart from all the other creatures with a great and mighty calling and a task. Talk about fulfilling life, calling, and purpose. We had it. We were set apart from all creatures to reflect God's goodness as we create societies and civilizations and art and industry. Imagine what the world would be like if mankind never turned from God, if mankind had always lived a holy life unto God. Never a moment of jealousy in others or in you Never even a hint of pridefulness. Nothing but unfettered love by every person for every other person. And because no sin had ever befell the world, all of mankind's work was fruitful. Every action of every person, each and every day, would radiate God's glory throughout the universe. My friends, that is what we were made for. But in our ignorance, we have settled for less. Look at verse 14. Peter writes, And do not be conformed by the passions of your former ignorance. Peter is saying, listen, Peter is saying that until God awakens us to his holiness and our need of it, we live in ignorance. We know a better life must exist. We just can't put our finger on it. 
Did you know that 85 to 95% of amputees complain of phantom sensations in their missing limbs? Though the arm is gone, it feels as though there's an itch at the elbow. Though the leg is gone, it feels as if it's in a boot one size, the foot feels like it's in a boot one size too small. That is how it is until God moves in our lives and restores us. Our souls have itches that cannot be scratched. Our lives are lived under constant pressure as if we're living in a boot one size too small. And we don't know any other way. And yet there's that itch. We try everything to make it go away. Relationships, careers, status, possessions. That itch points to the reality that something once was there, a wholeness that was peaceful. And so, my friends, understand this. Salvation is far more than you having your sins forgiven. It's the discovery that that itch in your soul isn't a phantom, but it's real. That true eternal meaning and purpose in life exists. Because now you've been restored by your creator and set apart by him to live out your new life with its original purpose for which God has made you. That's what the gospel brings to your life. Based on what I've just described, to be holy is to be set apart by God as his which means he has brought you back in. You have been brought near to God. The awesome, magnificent, divine giver of life has brought you into a life-giving relationship with him. Now think of this, though. Conversely, those who lack this holiness, this set-apartness from God, remain distant from God, living phantom sensations, separated from God, and not even knowing it. Let me just say this. There cannot be any set of circumstances in anyone's life that is worse than this. So God is holy, and we are made in his image to be holy, but we're not holy, and that is not a good position to be in. Now, how do we get out of this situation? Well, it involves two things, a woe and a wow. A woe, not a, not a woe horsey, right? W-H-O-A. Not that woe. W-O-E. Woe. Oh, that kind of woe. All right? There we go. If you're taking notes, that's how you spell it. Woe is the proper response of Isaiah in the passage that Danny read earlier, Right? Isaiah is given a glimpse of heaven itself. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. The glory is so awesome that even the seraphim, they got six wings. They have to use two of them to cover their eyes for God's glory is so amazing. And Isaiah is there in the presence of the scene. And what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What does Isaiah mean by the words, woe is me, I am lost? 
Well, Isaiah had come to realize that his comprehension of God was all wrong. He's a prophet. He still didn't get God's holiness right. The Lord isn't some tame deity that he can manipulate by good deeds, nor beckon to do man's bidding. God brought Isaiah into his presence. And so in one sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a mercy of God. It's God's grace coming to Isaiah, that Isaiah could be brought in so that his eyes could be opened. And now Isaiah was no longer ignorant of the holiness of God. Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm unclean. He's saying, my situation is hopeless. You know, I had a similar situation. Not exactly. I didn't see any seraphim uh, when I was 29 years old. But it was just as perhaps traumatic. You know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And by the time I was 29, I was quite the atheist. Uh, I used to rile at Christians for their nonsensical beliefs in God. Where is he? I used to mock, if he's so interested in me, why doesn't he come and show himself to me? Careful what you ask for. In the middle of the night, in August of 1995, I was awoken from my sleep with this overwhelming sense of dread. I couldn't get out of my mind the thought that if there is a God, if there is a God in heaven, he is looking down on earth, And he's rightly ticked. That wasn't the language I used then. But. And I had in my mind, I'm like, he's looking down on this earth and humanity is like bugs just scurrying across the earth, screwing everybody over. And no one is looking up to honor the deity. I didn't use the words, but woe is me is what I felt. And so began my journey to faith in Christ. My friends, we all must have some sort of woe is me moment in our lives if we're ever to be restored back to God. Otherwise, we are stuck in our ignorance concerning God's holiness and our lack of it. And guess what? Even Simon Peter, the one who wrote this this passage we have before us, he had a woe is me moment. You can read it in Luke chapter 5. It was before Peter became a follower of Jesus. Check this out. Jesus climbs into Peter's boat. Uh, hey, hi, I'm, I'm Jesus. Hi. I see you just got back from a long trip. You look really tired. I don't have any coffee, but how about we go fishing again? Peter, as if he was saying, Master, you just stick to what you're good at. You're a carpenter, right? I'm the fisherman. He's saying, I've been out all night. We haven't caught a thing. But I'll be obedient. We'll go out. Guess what? I'm going to show you you're wrong. They set out. He knows his nets are going to be empty. But you remember what happened? Peter caught so many fish that he had to call another commercial fishing vessel to come over to help him get the nets up. And even then, the nets were so full that it almost capsized both boats. It's good to go fishing with Jesus. (laughs) Listen, how did Peter respond? 
How did he respond? Did he go up and go, fist pump, bang, Jesus, that was awesome, woo! Right? Did he say, Jesus, you're my homeboy? No. Listen to Luke's words. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon Peter. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Follow me. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. How does Peter respond? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Okay, maybe not in those exact words. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Peter recognized that one greater than man was in the boat with him. Now, how would our modern-day psychology respond to Peter? Oh, Peter, you're overreacting. You have a self-esteem problem. Just change your thought patterns and stop being so hard on yourself. Oh, and by the way, there's no such thing as sin. We all make mistakes, so just get over it. I hope you notice that Jesus didn't say to Peter, Peter, you're not a sinful. Jesus didn't do that, did he? He didn't say, Peter, Peter, you're not a sinful man. Just, you know, said, what did Peter, what did Jesus say to Peter? Don't be afraid. There's something about the presence of Christ that though you experience the glory of God in a woe, he's able to change that woe to a moment of peace for you. He's able to change your woe to a moment of grace. He's able to change it to a wow. That's what Peter experienced. Jesus was saying to Peter, come and follow me. It's my presence in your life that will make you holy. Peter needed a mediator, didn't he? One who would intervene on his behalf and atone for his sin and restore him. And at that time, how little did Peter know of what Jesus would end up doing for Peter and for us. I don't think Peter would have been ready on that first day of following the Lord to hear him say, Peter, I'm going to do something in the years ahead that your mind cannot fully grasp. I'm going to the cross for you. The woe that belongs to all of mankind and the woe that belongs to you will land on me and I will take all of your guilt away. I will atone for you. Jesus doesn't yet give Peter all the details. He simply offers to be a, a presence in his life until that day. And so Peter dropped what he was doing and followed Christ. Isaiah needed a mediator too. Once again, Isaiah 6. says, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, right? And then what does God do? 
He sends a mediator. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. God sent a mediator to do for Isaiah what Isaiah could not do for himself. With great symbolism, right? The seraphim took took hot purifying coals and touched what? Isaiah's lips. The very instrument of the prophet. His lips had been cleansed by, by fire. His guilt had been taken away. His sins were atoned for. God in his grace sent a mediator to remedy Isaiah's woe. And his woe over his sin turned into a wow at God's grace. God asks, who's going to go for me and speak on my behalf? Here's Isaiah. One moment, like 10 seconds earlier, he's cowering in fear, believing that his life is utter ruin. And the next moment, he's ready to go wherever God wants him to go. That's the power of God's holiness in your life, him setting you apart for himself. God's grace transforms us into totally different people. God brought Isaiah near and set him apart as his instrument on earth to to finally have that phantom itch dealt with. Perhaps Isaiah was like, I've got these lips and I know I'm supposed to use them for some purpose, but I don't know what that is yet. I feel so empty. I'm skilled with my mouth, with my lips, but but I don't feel my purpose in life is being fulfilled. And God says, you're right. Let me fix that. It was the same for Simon Peter. He said, woe is me, I'm undone. And he follows Jesus says, Peter, don't be afraid. Follow me. I make you fishers of men. Jesus is saying, let me be a presence in your life. And not only will you experience my grace, but you will enjoy the restoration of the divine purpose that you have as a human being made in God's image. The phantom itch will be gone. You will have the purpose you've been longing for. Peter's woe becomes a wow, and he drops everything, even all that fish. We have a commercial fisherman who's a member of our church. I'm sure if he was here, he'd probably be shaking his head. At least clean them and sell them. Just don't go walking away. My friend, salvation isn't just the forgiveness of sin or the removal of sin. As good and necessary as that is, salvation has as its goal your holiness. You're being set apart by God as his treasured possession so that his grace can more and more make you alive and so that you more and more take on the image of God as it's being restored in your life. My friends, do you see the importance of what we're looking at here? Without being set apart as holy by God, you will never become the person that you were made to be. No matter the self-help books or whatever you read, that phantom itch will never go away. Everything's on the line here. 
All right, so that concludes this really long main point. God is holy. We're made in God's image to be holy, but we're, we're not holy, and that's not a good position to be in. But thankfully, God has remedied our situation through his son, Jesus Christ, who was able to make us holy so that we can finally not only desire to be holy, but actually become the people we were made to be. Now, for a real brief moment, let's look at the purity aspect of holiness. See, it's only after laying the foundation that holiness is primarily the the set-apartness that God does for us in in Christ that we're able to address the purity aspect of holiness. It's not until you're the knife in in the... in the middle cloth drawer that's the turkey carving knife set apart for just that, that you're able to say, you know what? Don't use me for spreading peanut butter, right? I've got a special purpose. I cannot be defiled by such things, especially with high fructose corn syrup in it. All right. Anyway, how did I get to that? All right. That's what happens when I stray from my notes. Um, See, it's because God has made you holy by his grace that he's able to call you to holy living. See, people think Christianity is about being holy so that God will like you and and set you apart as his own. No, it's the other way around. God in his grace has loved you and set you apart as his. Therefore, he is making us good by his grace. Christianity is not about doing. It's about being who God has now created you to be. It's only by his grace that you and I are even able to desire holiness, let alone experience holiness of conduct. Verse 15, Peter says, And he who called you is holy, so you also uh, be holy in all your conduct. Peter's saying your conduct is no longer to be patterned by the passions of your former ignorance. He was writing to Christians who were suffering and struggling. Life was hard them. Temptations were everywhere. Now, know this. Christians everywhere, from every generation, are tempted to settle in. To go back to finding pleasure in the passions that used to control them. To go back to the things they used to use to scratch that itch they just didn't know how to satisfy. And so understand this, Christian. At your conversion, there began a holy struggle for purity in your life. The struggle of dying to that old self and coming alive to your new self in Christ Jesus. I've preached enough sermons on those. You probably know the passages in the Bible of where to turn to 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 find those passages. We're not going to go into so much the things that need to be done. I think most Christians know. But here's what we need to understand, that there is this struggle that we're now a part of. Until the day you die or the day Jesus returns, whichever comes first, you will battle against the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We Christians have a word for this. It's called sanctification. It's the lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Our problem, though, is we're tempted after a little bit of time of putting off the really crazy sins to say, you know, I'm good enough. I'm going to settle in. Stop doing the bong hits, you know. I no longer sleep around like a stray dog. I'm good enough for now. But we must not settle in. We must battle on for holiness of conduct. 
This is why we see throughout Scripture, God says, I am holy, I've made you holy, now be who I've made you to be. Everywhere throughout Scripture. Don't use your dearly bought turkey carving set to cut up duct tape in the garage. And don't use your dearly bought soul of yours to engage in impurity. The sins that Jesus died to forgive you of, you cannot in good conscience continue in them. And so the Christian life in general, and holiness in particular, is a battle. And so you have to be all in. You can't take it lightly. That's what Peter tells us in our passage. There's a tough mental attitude that you must have towards sin in your life. Look at it. Verse 13, there's three things that you're to do with your mind. First, he says, preparing your mind for action. Preparing. Imagine if you're watching an NFL football game and on the sideline you see a quarterback sitting on the bench playing Candy Crush or Words with Friends. Ridiculous, right? Why? Because his mind needs to be in the game even though he's not playing because he might need to go into the game. It must, the, our minds must be set for action. Our minds need to be turned up to 11 regarding our moral purity. Second, Peter says to be sober-minded. Drunks have no control over their minds nor their bodies. They lack perception as to what really is going on around them and to what's important. They lack the ability to make wise decisions. Hence, Peter is called to being sober-minded and how we process everything that goes on in our lives. Sober-mindedness leads to the third action that we're to use our minds for. Look at this last part. It's beautiful. Verse 13, part, last part of it says what? Use your minds to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the day, day that the Bible talks about every day, the day that when Christ returns and, and, and God purifies and purges this world of all that is impure and heaven comes down to earth and the eternal age is ushered in, a day when all struggles of the church will be forever gone, a day when all of our tears and sorrows will be undone and our and all the phantom limbs of our souls will be restored forever for good. The victory that we long for will be here at last. And your battle for holiness will finally be won. Peter says, Peter says let that future grace penetrate your life today in your battle for holiness. Christian, there's amazing power in Peter's words. He's saying that as you look towards the grace of Christ that you've experienced in the past on the cross, and as you look forward to the um, grace of Christ in the future, let that reality be present in your life today. There's great power in the grace of God in your life. 
It's the only power you can rely on as we battle against the sin that so easily comes upon us. Where the grace of Christ is present, there's power to live in holiness. I don't know where you stand this morning. Maybe you're just going to want to run out and buy a smartphone. <laughs> Maybe you feel left out. I don't know. Um, maybe you're just beginning this process to process God in a different way. Maybe you're finally starting to open your eyes to God's holiness. He's not just someone you can just fist pump, right? Pump, did I say pump? Maybe you don't feel worthy of his presence. Maybe you don't feel like you deserve his love or forgiveness. Guess what? You're in a good spot. Know that with a moment of woe where you lament over who you are in God's presence, there there is to come a moment of grace and a wow at his mercy towards you. If you but trust your life to Christ. I encourage you to do that right now. Give your life to Christ and he will shepherd you. He will be a presence in your life that will purify you. Most of us here are followers of Christ. We need to use our minds to recognize that God is holy and that we too have been made holy unto God through Christ. We're not merely saved from sin, but we're saved for holiness. God has set you apart as his own so that he can rework his divine image into your life so that you can display his glory in your life to the world that needs to see the glory of God. I encourage you to embrace this calling. Take your holiness serious. Share your failings. Share your struggles with other Christians here in the church. Hold each other accountable. Say, I'm done with that. Will you help me? I want to be the clean vessel that God can use fully for his glory. By his grace, I'll be that person. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let the grace come. May it be a grace that penetrates our life today, we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you that you are holy. You are, you are not a, a being we can hold in our hands. We can't even begin to grasp you with our human minds. You are infinite, glorious, powerful, magnificent. You are the creator. We are not. Thank you for reminding us that this morning. Thank you also that you set people apart as your own. That's crazy to think about that. Creatures walking on the earth, belonging to you as special, made pure through Christ so that we can live lives that honor you to where our original purpose can be restored. We thank you that the gospel is so good. Encourage us this morning, even as we gather for the Lord's table, to be reminded of your holiness and our holiness now in Christ, we pray. Amen.